This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. I call this talk uh, The Unenlightened Englishman, and I'll explain a little bit more why I've given it that title. It's about Sangharachita. Uh, I'll say a few words in introduction though before I explain why I've given it that title. Um, I thought we would do, before the talk, I thought we would do the Metabhavna meditation, the loving kindness meditation. Um, and there is a reason for that. In, in a way, it sort of epitomizes for me uh, a contribution that Sangharachita has made to modern Buddhism. Um, which specifically is raising the profile of the Metabhavana meditation, uh, and more generally is bringing in very, very traditional and very crucial aspects of Buddhism, uh, but uh, sometimes giving them a new and different emphasis. So the Metabhavana meditation is, some, is a meditation that the Buddha very strongly encouraged uh, during his early teachings, and is always there. You'll find it in all Buddhist traditions. Um, but it's something that Sangharachita decided to give equal emphasis to mindfulness meditation, which isn't always the case in other Buddhist traditions. Now, I'm not sure why he decided to do that, but I think it may well go along with the fact that he felt that the cultivation of your emotions is as important as the cultivation of your understanding, as your mindfulness and sensitivity and all that kind of thing. And so he felt that as well as uh, doing the, as it were, inward-looking mindfulness of breathing, it's very important uh, that people who are trying to practice Buddhism also do the outward-looking love and kindness meditations and are uh, taking their emotions seriously and cultivating positive emotion in that way. Um, Now, the title of this talk, uh, The Unenlightened Englishman, it refers to a film, a documentary, uh, a sympathetic documentary about Sangharachita that was made in the late 80s by a filmmaker called Bob Mullins, uh, shown on Anglia TV, and it was called The Enlightened Englishman. Now, naturally, uh, Sangharachita wasn't very pleased with that title, um, because he's not enlightened. But it's a nice film, and it, it, there's an, there are interviews with him, and it also follows him on a return visit to India, where he'd spent so many formative years as a Buddhist monk, uh, as he tours the holy places and uh, gives lectures to the uh, to Buddhists in India. And it's to India that Sangharachita was fortuitously uh, sent as a soldier during the Second World War. So, Sangharachita is unenlightened. Probably most of us here are also uh, unenlightened. Uh, And I do think that one of the interesting things with a a sort of a a prominent Buddhist teacher is that people do tend to swing too far one way or the other, either, as in the case of the title of that film, overestimating them, sticking them up on a pedestal, here's this wonderful person, uh, only, of course, to be knocked off when you realise that they have feet of clay and they're not perfect by any means. Or, on the other hand, uh, underestimating them and thinking that they're just completely sort of ordinary. 
uh, underestimating them as a human being and also underestimating their achievements. Uh, so I hope I can give a, I'll try to give a relatively balanced picture uh, of Sangha Rakshita. I'll say something about his, uh, his life, what he actually got up to, uh, and his reason for wanting to found a new uh, Buddhist movement, uh, and a little bit about the approaches he's taken, the, t- the, the, the teachings that he's made, uh, as an introduction to a series that we'll do. And I hope the series won't be just out of interest in the guy who founded uh, the Tree Ratna Buddhist community. I hope it will also be useful Dharma, uh, because I think there is a lot of very useful Dharma there, bringing in uh, traditional Buddhist teachings, uh, but also slants on those teachings which reflect uh, modern society, uh, Western culture and so on. So I, I talked about um, Sangharakshita arriving in India uh, with the army, with the royal signals, in the 1940s, but he was actually already a Buddhist at that stage. It wasn't going to India that made him a Buddhist. So he was a Londoner, uh, working class origin. Um, he was born in Stockwell, uh, brought up in, in Tooting. Um, his father was a French polisher. Uh, his mother was of Hungarian refugee stock. And what happened to make him a Buddhist was this. He was... Uh, a bookworm as a teenager. At the age of 16, he was wandering down the Charing Cross Road, went into a bookshop, picked up a book. And this book was the Diamond Sutra. Um, A very important and very extraordinary and almost completely incomprehensible uh, Buddhist text, the Diamond Sutra. You may have had a look at it. I mean, it is wonderful. And... I can remember a, a sort of a parallel experience, although actually long after I got interested in Buddhism, uh, I was working at the Open University and uh, a volume of collection of wisdom sutras came in and it was there. On the, I would always look at the new acquisitions every week, see what, what new books they got in. And I read this and it's as if sometimes you pick up something and on the one hand you cannot work out what it's about, but on the other hand you feel there's something absolutely amazingly Profound, something that transcends the possibility of the rational mind to take in, which is coming through these words. And that's what I felt with that. And I think that's what he felt, or perhaps even more, uh, when he read the Diamond Sutra at the age of 16. Um, And he sort of resonated with it. Um, And what he said later on about it, he said, when he read it, he said, I knew I was a Buddhist and I had always been a Buddhist. So it wasn't a conversion experience, it was a recognition experience, which is very interesting, isn't it? And in the 75 years since then, the, that deep experience and all its implications have been working through him and you know, have given a, a direction to his life, I suppose. So with that initial contact with Buddhism, I'm not going to say more about his, his early life there, there's a lot one could say, he's written huge volumes of autobiography, um, but... Uh, when he was posted to India uh, with the Royal Signals, he was delighted. He thought, great, right. And they walked, went to Sri Lanka, and they went to Singapore. So he had a chance to encounter Buddhism in the East. And when the war was over, he didn't wait to be demobbed and sent back to England. He just burnt his passport and wandered on the dusty tracks of India without possessions in the footsteps of the Buddhist monks of old with just one uh, companion. 
uh, dressed in um, just a piece of cloth that he dyed using alum and a particular soil that you get in there, again, in the traditional Buddhist manner. Uh, and with no money, uh, no vehicles, nothing at all, just relying on what people would, would give them uh, and living uh, as a wandering ascetic. And then later on, he was ordained as a bhikkhu, a monk. Uh, he was ordained by a Burmese monk, which made him officially a Theravadin Buddhist, a member of the Southern School. Uh, and then he found a Theravadin teacher, an Indian uh, uh, monk, who taught him Pali, and who sent him to a town in the Himalayan foothills called Kalimpong, and said, go there and work for the good of Buddhism. And he lived there for 14 years, practicing, did a lot of meditation, um, and meeting refugee Mahayana Buddhist teachers, um, mainly from Tibet. And these teachers became his gurus. Um, so this picture here shows eight particularly important teachers. This was the Theravadin monk who taught him Pali, uh, Jyotish Kashyap. Uh, and this was a Chinese Zen, or Chan, teacher uh, called uh, Yogi Chen. And then the other six... Uh, are all Tibetan lamas, Tibetan teachers. Um, and in fact, I've just noticed on the back, it even says who they are, if you're interested. <laughs> so actually, this was, it wasn't that he started off as a Theravadin, by the way. Um, the very first article he wrote for publication, he was 19 years old, and he wrote an, a, an article for a journal called The Middle Way, which was on the unity of Buddhism. And it was something that he felt very strongly from the beginning, that you know, where you didn't have to be a sectarian if you're a Buddhist. You didn't have to decide on one particular national-based tradition to follow. Uh, in a way, there was a huge amount of riches in this vast Asian Buddhist tradition coming from all sorts of different places. And there was no need for you to sort of uh, uh, reject some and accept others. And of course, so it was fantastic when... Uh, he, he met these Mahayana teachers coming down from most of them Tibetan refugees, um, uh, but fantastic teachers, people who had an enormous influence on him. Uh, and so he was uh, writing, uh, he was teaching Buddhism, running a little, little Buddhist monastery there. And then after 20 years in India, in 1964 he visited England and he decided that the West needed Buddhism too. And Buddhism was in a very rudimentary form um, in, in Europe and America in those days. So he decided he was going to found a Buddhist order, neither monastic nor lay. One of the things that he'd felt strongly in the East, that, uh, particularly in the Theravadin countries, was that there was a bit of an issue of the monks being seen as the full-time Buddhists who were simply supported by those who weren't monks. And he felt very strongly, uh, although he was a monk, he felt very strongly that Anybody can practice Buddhism. Anybody can sincerely devote themselves, commit themselves to practicing Buddhism. And that the lifestyle you follow is an expression of that commitment. And for some people, it'll be appropriate to uh, not have a family, not to have possessions, to wander uh, as a monk. But for others, uh, it's not necessarily the most appropriate thing. So he wanted to found an order that welcomed both. Um, and that's what is now the Tree Ratna Buddhist order. 
And it was founded, uh, well, as I say, the first ordinations were in 1968. Um, so nearly 50 years ago, that's how long the order's been going. And, and I'm not actually sure how many people it's got in it now. It's about 2,500, I think, isn't it? Who are actually ordained Buddhists all over the world. Anyway, going back to the 1960s, late 1960s, hippie London, um, and he flipped away from this austere Kalimpong life as a scholar monk, and much to the horror of the British Buddhist establishment, he grew his hair long, he consorted with the alternative set, um, and after years of celibacy, he discovered drugs, he discovered music, he discovered sex, he wrote experimental poems, he slept under the stars at Glastonbury, you know, so he, he really sort of lived the life, even though he was by now um, in his 40s, um, so he wasn't a, a young hippie. And his Buddhist movement <coughs> attracted a dynamic uh, set of young men and women. Men and women, very interesting also, another reason that he broke with tradition in founding a new order. He wanted something which offered an equal ordination for men and uh, women, uh, which largely avoided the anguish of the traditional Theravadin discrimination against women. Okay, now, late 60s, I was studying physics down at Sussex University in the mid-70s. And that's where I encountered uh, Tri Ratna. I encountered the excellent meditation teaching. I think Tri Ratna is still known generally as being a very good place to come and learn meditation. I hope so, at least. Um, and that's what I needed at the time. And I decided, encountering Buddhism in this way, that I was not going to approach Buddhism in my usual uh, academic way of sort of absorbing as much information as I possibly could because I had this ability to absorb a lot of information um, as a science uh, undergraduate. But I decided not to do that, um, which maybe was a shame because, of course, the founder, uh, Sangharakshita, was a literary man uh, and he was communicating a lot through his writings, through his books. Um, but what I did do I didn't listen to read his books, but I did listen to his lectures on tape. And in particular, there was a series called Higher Evolution, which I listened to. Uh, and this was uniting science and Buddhism in one great sort of visionary sequencing, which I hope to talk a bit more about in a future talk in this series. Uh, and that had a very big impact on me. Um, I'd always assumed that religion and science were opposed to each other. Um, and I'd assumed that I would never be a religious person. I don't think I am a religious person, actually, but you know, I'd assumed that I wouldn't sort of get committed to anything like that. Because, But then I thought, no, at least for, in his presentation, and at that time I was a complete beginner, so I didn't know whether he was right or wrong. In his presentation, he was a way of looking at Buddhism as being something which was very much compatible with science, even extending science, even offering a scientific, a more empirical way of understanding human consciousness, a personal experience, realising that personal experience wasn't something which could uh, had to be seen in a completely separate light to the way we understand uh, the universe around us and uh, the evolution of animals and so on. And a year later, 
after I'd listened to those lectures, Sanger actually himself came down to Brighton and gave a series, uh, a short series of talks. Uh, it was in the King William IV room in the Royal Pavilion, which is this amazing room with hand-painted wallpaper with all these birds and, and little Chinese trees and things. It's worth a visit if you're ever down there. Uh, and so this was, uh, it was popular, there were popular talks and um, they were interesting. And I remember he, um, so he's now in his 50s, He's a guy, still got the long hair, sideburns, and this big marla of huge wooden beads. Um, uh, and just quite sort of scruffy, actually. Quite a scruffy sort of guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, and sort of, sort of quite affable, but no, I didn't get sort of, wow, my guru, wonderful. It wasn't nothing like that at all. You know, I just thought, yeah, very interesting stuff. You must go and think about that a bit, you know. Uh, again, which suited me. I didn't want to be uh, seduced by some cult. And in fact, um, I remember um, the editor of the newsletter for Tree Ratner in those days once described Sangharachtra as defiantly uncharismatic. <laughs> uh, which is very, uh, very true, actually, I think. Uh, I, I think. And again, I felt quite grateful for that. Um, I think there's a lot of difficulty with charismatic mm. people. It can be quite a problem. Mm. I'm sure for some people, maybe he was charismatic. <laughs> do st- if you've got any questions and thoughts about all this, do store them up, by the way. I'm going to try and leave plenty of time for that at the end. Um, and the, another interesting thing was, I didn't really like him. Um, <laughs> it's, I don't mean I disliked him. It's not so much that, but I didn't particularly like him um, personally. Uh, and it meant that it meant I could just straightforwardly listen to his uh, teachings on Buddhism and evaluate them and decide whether they were useful or not. And so again, I'm quite grateful uh, that in my case it was like that. Anyway, um, after another uh, couple of years, um, I moved to uh, Padmaloka, uh, and I decided I decided I wanted to live in a Buddhist community, and I tried one, an urban one in London. Uh, and although it was a very, very nice community, I'd been brought up in London and I'd escaped down to the South Downs and I didn't want to go back to London. I really didn't. I loved living in the countryside. So when I discovered um, that the gardens in this rural retreat centre were horribly overgrown, I went up and talked to the people living there and I said, you need a gardener here, don't you? Uh, I said, will you uh, support me if I come up and become your gardener? Um, I didn't really know very much about that. <laughs> I sort of pretended I did. <laughs> and they, they took me on. Yeah, so I, I moved up there. Um, uh, and joined the community there. Um, and by this stage, I'd become a metro. In other words, I decided... Uh, I hadn't really done the kind of thing that maybe a rational person should do, is try... I like Buddhism, let's try every different kind of Buddhism. I hadn't really done that, I'm afraid. Until later, I did actually really explore other forms of Buddhism much more thoroughly. But I just liked this particular approach. I liked its Western character. I liked its scientific character. I liked its um, its sort of non-religious character, I suppose. And I thought, yeah, I'm just going to stay with this for a while, see how it goes. So I lived in the community up there, and that was where Sangharachtra at the time was living. So for five years, I lived in this fairly large retreat centre community uh, with Sangharachtra, and I'm really glad about that. That was, that was a fantastic opportunity. Uh, not only was it a great place to live and it's there that I got ordained and all that kind of thing and learnt a lot about Buddhism 
but also I was able to sort of keep an eye on him and see what mm-hmm. he got up to and see what kind of a, a chap he was. I was able to observe him closely. Um, now, this was a phase that he was going through. This was his promiscuous phase, uh, which much later caused a lot of scandal uh, and a lot of problem for him. Now, at the time, as far as I could tell, nobody seemed bothered by it. It was still a time when people saw sex as being fun. And I wasn't bothered by it, and I wasn't involved with him. But by then, his lovers were always men. And later, some people who'd had liaisons with him uh, really regretted it, and they felt quite bitter towards him, I think, uh, for, as they saw, uh, using their respect for him as a teacher to get them into bed. You know, that's the way they saw it in the end. Um, And he seems, in retrospect, to have behaved quite callously, I think, towards some people in those days, just seeing sex as fun, a take-it-or-leave-it aspect of what was more important to him, which was, um, which was friendship, which was connection. Not comprehending, uh, maybe because of all his time out of Europe in India, not comprehending that for people it was a big deal. There was a lot of guilt attached to sex, especially in connection with homosexuality in their minds. And he has apologised for that phase, but still not everybody is satisfied about that. But that's, that was the time when I, I was there. Um, I was there, I saw it all. <laughs> and my, my dominant experience of him um, was of a very kind and a very mindful man. Those two things um, were the main things I noticed, apart from his uh, immense knowledge of, of Buddhism and also not just of Buddhism, actually, of Western culture, particularly literature of Hinduism, very knowledgeable about Hinduism uh, and other religions, very, very interested in, in culture in general. Um, very creative also in his thinking, a very unusual mind. And particularly, the most important thing, I suppose, that he really was interested in was how you can practice Buddhism today without losing the spirit of Buddhism. Um, And it's quite a a line to draw, isn't it? You know, there have been many uh, modern, as it were, masters who have taken bits out of Eastern religion and tried to form their own version of it whether it's Krishnamurti or Gurdjieff or lots and lots of them through the 20th century in Europe. Um, and then there are others maybe who've just tried to be very, very traditional to come from one particular school of Buddhism and to try to keep that faithfully alive and to get a middle way between that thing of, of doing something that is just your personal uh, approach on the one hand and doing something that is simply slavishly following a particular Eastern type of Buddhism is a, a, a very fine line to draw, and I don't know whether he's always been successful in it, but I think I, you know, I'm very glad that he attempted that and mm-hmm. has attempted that and has encouraged other people to attempt it as well. He's not sort of set up something which is fixed. It's something which is evolving, which is changing, which is being contributed to by other people. So how to practice Buddhism today without losing his spirit, losing its spirit. And um, one of the things I remember that he said was that what his, his sort of credo in a way, his faith was human beings can change number one and this is a very important point which not everybody would agree with but in a way you can, you're not stuck Um, and then secondly you can change yourself in other words it's not you just wait for change to happen, you can actually engage with your life, you can engage with your own mind, your own mental states and and you can do something with yourself. You can, and obviously meditation is important there, but many other practices as well. And then the third thing he said is that 
um, you can help other people to change. Uh, so you can't make other people change. They've got to do it. But you can be involved in other people in, other, in the way that rather than getting in their way as they change, you can actually you know, be providing conditions, uh, providing encouragement and support that will help them to do that. And then the fourth thing in that little aphorism was, together you can change the world. So a person can change, they can change themselves, uh, they can help others to change, and together they can change the world. Because if we're going to change the world, if we're going to make the world a better place, improve society, it's a very, very unusual person who can make much of an impact on their own. You've got to be doing it with others but with others who are committed to their own development, not just with others who have a vision for how the world should be better without them changing. You've got to have that balance, again, between the two. So you're neither uh, sort of an introspective navel-gazer, just interested themselves, nor are you the old-fashioned socialist who knows what's best for everybody else, but yet is very unpleasant to his or her own partner and children and dog and so on, you know. So the two things that I noticed when I lived with him uh, were his qualities of mindfulness and of kindness. And I found that to observe somebody who was seemed to be always mindful was a real lesson. To somehow see that mirror, to see it's possible for a person to be always mindful. And this is what it looks like. I mean, I, I don't mean that I wanted to imitate his way of moving or his way of speaking or something, but just the sense that, yes, OK, that's what it involves. It, it's, it's something that needs to become a habit mindfulness so that when you sit down to eat you sit down mindfully when you start to eat you eat mindfully if something comes up that gets in the way of your mindfulness like you know a lot of chit chat around the table you may say i don't think i'm going to join in you know with this, all this chit chat around the table at the moment because i'm just not able to eat mindfully i'll start i'll join in once i've finished eating you know that was one of his habits you know he would just eat silently and then there would be a lot of really fascinating conversation around the table after uh, he, you know, we'd, we'd finished eating sort of thing um, and so on, so mindfulness but the other side was kindness as well and he'd have a lot of visitors uh, during this period ranging from the odd bishop and other Buddhist dignitaries his Parsi friends from India um, uh, people just you know his own uh, disciples uh, just people from the local people from the village, even politicians all sorts of people would come and see him journalists sometimes doing interviews and the interesting thing that I noticed with that was that he was always very good at finding something in common with the person he was talking to. And that's a, that's a fantastic skill. It's partly because his knowledge was so encyclopedic that, you know, if what they were keen on was um, fishing or something, you'd just discover he knew about fishing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and he'd, uh, he'd be able to talk to them about that, you know. Um, so, yes, and so he was just very, very open and kind. I did really find him a very warm, very kind person even though some people you know, were a bit in awe of him, a bit um, scared of him. So, um, I think I'm not going to say much more about, about the rest of his life from then, was to do with um, setting up Tri Ratna. And actually, one thing I will mention is that I remember when he was about 60, he started very seriously preparing for his own death which is interesting because he's lived another 30 years or more. Um, but he had been a real invalid as a child, as you may know. He was bedridden for several years as a child. And he didn't think he would live very long. And he decided that one of the most important things is, if you're going to set up a new movement, is it going to survive? 
And probably the great majority of new religious movements don't survive the death of their own founder, at least not very long. Or even worse, they, they turn sour, they go wrong. So he was very keen to make sure that it was something that wasn't just his project. It was something where there were many other people who were involved, who were uh, responsible, who were moving it on. And uh, in particular, from a Buddhist point of view, the important thing here is who is conferring the ordinations. So he decided he wouldn't just form a Buddhist society, but he would form an order. In other words, he would form a a Buddhist organisation, which at the centre of which were people who made a full, ritual, lifelong commitment to practising Buddhism, which is what ordination means in Buddhism. Uh, Next week, we're going to hear from Kaushadevi on going for refuge. And going for refuge is this traditional Buddhist term, which uh, Sangharakshita really emphasised. Uh, you're a Buddhist not because you call yourself a Buddhist or you look like a Buddhist. You're a Buddhist because the three jewels, the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, are at the centre of your life. So he wanted to say, to have a, a, you know, a public recognition of that, a ceremony where people had accepted the three jewels into the centre of their life and had been accepted into a particular order. And this is the way that, uh, in their own way, all Buddhist organisations, all Buddhist traditional Buddhist uh, ordinations work, you have an ordination, which in some cases is an ordination as a monk or a nun, but not in all cases, and not in the case of Triratna. So he set this order up. And so you can see, if you think about it a bit, you can see that what preserves the integrity of an order is who is qualified to confer ordinations. Because those are the people who are the future of the order. The people who are getting ordained every year are the people who will be the most important people in the order in 5, 10, 15 years' time. So uh, what he tried to do was to train people up, uh, get quite a number of men and women who were sufficiently um, aware, sufficiently kind, sufficiently knowledgeable, sufficiently altruistic, I suppose you could say, uh, to be able to confer ordinations. And he started doing that um, in the late 1980s. Uh, So quite a long time ago. So now, in a way, the order can function completely and could have functioned for the last 30 years without him, without his involvement at all. Which doesn't mean, you might think, oh, thank goodness for that, he just retire. And I think maybe occasionally he's tried to do that, hasn't mm-hmm. he? Sometimes he's just tried, I think I'll just relax and write poems and things, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, he loves writing poems. Um, but, in, in, you know, sooner or later he gets interested in something, new ideas come, and he says, why do we do this, why do we do that? And so he gets back involved again. Master, some people's disgust. They say, why don't we go away? <laughs> the new generation. Uh, but he's no longer even the head of the order. Um, he's uh, the founder of the order, of course, but he's not the head of the order. He's not doing any ordinations these days. Uh, he's just living out his retirement um, and, and writing things. You know, basically, that's the main thing he's, he's doing these days. Uh, living out at, uh, at Adistana in Herefordshire. And this is, uh, I think I mentioned before, that's a picture of him there in the Malvern Hills. Um, very nice place. Where, where you can go on retreat if you want to. And I go and, you know, every so often I go and see him and have a chat and, uh, and try and catch up with him and keep that connection. Because although I said, it's interesting, I said I didn't like him. I said he's defiantly uncharismatic. But yet, on the other hand, he's extremely dear to me, I must say. He's been a very important figure. I, I've got nothing but gratitude uh, for him. I know that's not true with everybody. I mean, some people have had difficult contacts with him, but I'm not. Um, he's always been extremely kind and helpful to me. And, and the approach that he's taken to Buddhism 
has made all the difference uh, to my life and my practice. So I'm really grateful for that. Um, you know, I've had to do it myself, and I've had many other teachers um, and who I'm also in touch with, but you know, he, in a way, is the most crucial one from my point of view. Uh, and, and I really do admire uh, what he's done. And I hope that some of the things that he's done, some of the teachings that he's suggested, some of the things he's put in place will come out in the rest of this series. And I'm going to finish just by mentioning a few of those things. Um, uh, we at um, Akashi Daily had a, a brilliant idea, I thought, for how we could structure a series looking at the life and teachings of Sangharakshita, and that was to um, use this book, which is called The Essential Sangharakshita, a, a very... He's written so much, it's just a bit daunting. Uh, I, you know, he's one of those people that is very fluent with the pen, uh, sometimes a little bit too fluent with the pen. You know. uh, and so how do you decide what to read? Well, if you want to really take it seriously, this is a great place to start. It's, it's, it's very well selected and a very broad range of material, ranging from very scholarly material about Buddhism to very poetic material uh, and very practical teachings as well. And so um, um, Akasha Devi suggested using the sort of chapter headings in here as our basic structure, and that's what we're going to do. Um, if that, this is a very long book, although you, don't, you can read it bit by bit, but uh, it's 730 pages long. If you want something a little bit less daunting, um, I suggest this one, which is also sort of a compilation book, which is called A Guide to the Buddhist Path by Sarajita, a very good introduction to Buddhism, but I'm sure even if you know a lot about Buddhism, you'll find a lot uh, that's very useful in that one. Um, but if you look in our bookshop and in the library, you'll see he's, he's produced a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff to read. And there's a lot of stuff on uh, listening to his lectures, like that's the way I got into him. Rather than reading stuff, I just wanted not to sort of take things in in a too rational way, but to listen to his lectures is a very good thing to do. And if you go to Free Buddhist Audio... Uh, look down, see, you know, see some titles that strike you as interesting and, and try listening to his material. Um, so yes, next week we're going to look at Going for Refuge. Why is it that Going for Refuge makes you a Buddhist? A very interesting example there of where he's pulled something absolutely central out of Buddhism. All Buddhist schools agree, I go for refuge the Buddha, I go for refuge the Dharma, I go for refuge the Sangha. That is what makes you a Buddhist. But yet he's really emphasised that um, in, in a vivid and very helpful way, I think. And Akashi Devi will talk about that next week. Um, the following week, we're going to have Bodhi Leela, who's going to, I think she's going to talk about ritual, isn't yes. she? I think so. Yes. Ritual and uh, yes. probably do something a little bit ritual. Yeah, I think that'd be good. And I think it, it's something, you know, we probably know, obviously, a tree writer is, is a place to learn meditation. We also know of all these Buddhist teachings, trying to understand Buddhism, but again, one, one thing that he's always emphasised mm. is Buddhism isn't just a rational thing, it's emotional. Mm. How do you waken up the emotions? A collective chanting and ritual and so on is a really excellent way of doing that. Not for absolutely everybody, it's not that it's compulsory, but for a lot of people it's a really fantastic uh, practice uh, and maybe a little bit sort of neglected. You know. So we'll have a look at that. I hope we'll have uh, a look at some other topics as well, which I'll mention. Uh, the Path to Enlightenment. Uh, the stage of the path to enlightenment, you know, uh, a person can change, they can change themselves. Well, what is that process of change? Come and understand the stages of it. I want to say something about this evolutionary vision, which is very unfashionable at the moment. It's something that he was really used to stress in the late 60s. And I'd like to, I'd like to revive that, uh, that connection between Buddhism 
uh, and the, 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 what, what is nowadays called the evolutionary vision. I don't just mean evolution in a Dawkins sense of animals. I mean the whole sense that uh, reality is process and it's law-governed process. It's where you can understand the way things uh, develop, where, where they, the way one situation can emerge out of another and how it's possible to make those emerging situations actually progressive in the sense that you can help a situation to be better than the previous situation. So I'll say something more about that in, in the talk in uh, two or three weeks' time. Uh, maybe something on Tri Ratna and the different schools of Buddhism. I think that would be very interesting to look at that. What's, what's it drawn from the different schools? Is it, a, is it a pick and mix thing? Is it just where you know, he or other people just gone around saying, oh, I like that bit of Zen, and you know, this is the case, so that's from Zen, or oh, I like that little thing from, let's, let's do the Metabhavna from the Theravadin tradition, but let's do some... A ritual from the Tibetans, that's nice, that's nice. Or is there some uh, deeper principle behind that selective process? Because I don't think, I think pick and mix according to preferences is not a good way of setting up a movement. And you can see that's why some people have said, let's just stick to an Eastern Buddhist tradition, because I don't feel confident enough uh, to be able to uh, make uh, a reasonable selection from Buddhism um, that's, that is really true to its spirit and that isn't missing something out because of my own blind spots. And I think this is one of the interesting characteristics of Sangharachita is his self-confidence, even arrogance. Um, I, when I was living up at Padmaloka, I managed to persuade my dad uh, to come up and meet him. And he said, he's quite egotistical, isn't he? And I thought, at first I was a bit, oh, no, no, no. But I thought, yeah, it's true, actually. He is quite egotistical. And that egotism was partly a sense of he felt confident in his own ability to really recognise what was valuable in Buddhism. And I'm really pleased he had that confidence. I don't know if it was always well-placed or not. I'm not really in a position to say whether it was well-placed or not. As far as I can tell, that confidence probably was, uh, on the whole, well-founded. But it's interesting he had that confidence. And I think for some people that's quite off-putting. He, he actually he felt that he was a significant figure. He was somebody who really could make a difference. On the other hand, I should say, he also said quite explicitly, and he said it more than once, he was not a suitable person to start a new Buddhist movement. Mm-hmm. And the deficiencies and blind spots in his own personality, like uh, the sexual scandals I mentioned, they definitely got in the way of what he was able to do. Uh, and he felt that somebody with a different personality would probably be much more appropriate. But, you know, according to him, he felt there was, didn't seem to be anyone else to do it. So... I just did it, did my best, you know, and, and he had to discover, he had to learn a lot through doing it. He did it in a very um, non-systematic way, he did it in a very experimental and even intuitive way. So a lot of the ways that this movement has turned out were never planned. Um, they happened, not necessarily even from him, that other people had ideas. Oh, let's start living together in a Buddhist community. Let's try whether we could found a Buddhist business and work together in that way. What about having a nice big urban Buddhist centre? So all these things came. A lot of them weren't his idea, but he would sort of uh, maybe give them some encouragement and uh, and so on. You know. Anyway, that's that's interesting. Yeah. So, uh, Tri Ratna and how you how you make a new Buddhist movement? How do you do that? Grounded in tradition, um, but um, drawing from the other schools, but also being innovative. And then one or two of the ways that he's looked at things, which I'd say are traditionally Buddhist, but are using Western language. So, for example, what he calls the creative mind and the reactive mind. He's drawn things, a lot of things, from Western psychology like that, the idea of creativity and reactivity in the mind. 
uh, and a very, very useful way of looking at one's own mental state, I think. So I'm hoping we're going to have a session on the creative and reactive mind, maybe a session on wrong view, right view and perfect vision, um, a session on the greater mandala of aesthetic appreciation, uh, the importance of uselessness, the importance of, of seeing things in an artistic way, in an aesthetic way, uh, and not just in a way of what you can get out of things. So that, that greater mandala is a very interesting teaching, I think. Uh, some Buddhist myths and the way he's interpreted myths, very Jungian-influenced interpretation that he's used when he's looked at the myths of Buddhism. Very, very creative, I would say. Uh, yes, the rituals and ceremonies. Um, finding emotional equivalence to your understanding. That's an interesting one. I've mentioned how, how much he's pushed the importance of emotion. And it's not enough. You can understand Buddhism, you can think of yourself as a Buddhist, but it may make no difference unless your heart is in it, unless you really care about it. So how do you find those emotional equivalents to the things that you've understood? Um, renunciation and desire. The funny thing is, although he was playing around having a, an active sex life for, for, for a period, not for a, the whole of his life, he was always encouraging celibacy. He was saying, if you feel ready for it, give up sex. It's really complicated, it causes loads of problems. Be like a monk. He always said it's really good to be like a monk or a nun, actually. But he said, but you don't have to. You know, it has to be something that emerges naturally. So looking at desire and renunciation, I think, would be interesting. Um, gifts from Tibetan teachers. I mentioned most of these teachers are Tibetan. Uh, and in a way, we've got a rich pantheon of all those mythical figures from Tibetan Buddhism. The five Buddhas of the Mandala, for example, all the Bodhisattvas, Avalokiteshvara and Vajrapani and so on. I think it's very interesting. Maybe we'll have a chance to look at those. All from the Buddhist tradition, but all sort of uh, brought to, to life in the West. Um, everything is alive. Buddhism and nature. Animism. Uh, he said that he feels that for Buddhism to really thrive in the West, it needs to have a pagan base. It needs to welcome and celebrate paganism. That is the sense that nature is alive, uh, that nature is almost uh, has a mind of its own and is worth respecting in that way. And he feels that without that, uh, Buddhism will not become established in the West, without that respect uh, for the landscape uh, and the and nature. Uh, Kayana Mitrata, uh, gurus, friends, uh, how does that all work? Kayana Mitrata means spiritual friendship. Um, and those are all in the area of Buddhism and the heart. And then um, Buddhism and the world, I hope we'll have a look at some of that. Uh, how much do you need to withdraw into your own practice? How much can, can you be involved in society and the world? Work and the ideal society. Can you actually start to set up, at least in miniature, a society that works better than ours? A society that is not based on competition between people, on seeking the greatest financial rewards, on seeking status and so on, but is a cooperatively based society. And what does that imply for the way we work together? Um, a lot of ideas there. The world, the group and the individual. Uh, the importance of the balance between individual integrity on the one hand and working together. How can you work together with others? How can you do that thing of together we can change the world without losing track of your own uh, personal development and your own integrity and your own um, independence of mind, you know. So those are some of them. The, 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 I didn't actually mention the overall headings, which were some of the essentials, and then Buddhism and the mind, 
art, beauty and myth in the Buddhist tradition, uh, Buddhism and the heart, and uh, Buddhism and the world. We do all of those, but we'll keep us going for a while. Yeah, keep us going for a long yeah. time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We may have to be a bit selective and, and maybe come back to some of those a long time. I'm sure we'll come back yeah. to it. Does, does that sound interesting? Could that oh, be interesting? Yeah. So, um, I'm going to stop uh, there. I know there's a lot more, obviously, to say about it, but if anyone has any uh, questions, uh, we've still got a quarter an hour, so that would be interesting to hear you know, your questions. Yes? Um, I just want to say thank you. That's a really, really interesting talk. Um, hold on. Um, but I wanted to ask maybe a different talk, but um, on the influence of creativity within Buddhism, because you said about yeah. um, is that just completely different? And um, talk, or did he, in some way, was he creative in his life as well, or how did how was yeah. creativity? Because I've just heard bits and pieces about um, how he how it's a really important part of it is to everyone to be creative and. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I hope we will have a talk on creative and the reactive mind, looking at that. And I hope that will bring in also the sense of creativity in the arts. And my, you know, my area is more in science. And creativity is just so important. And I think that, you know, he would say and I would say that really to be a fully rounded human being, you need some kind of a, is outlet the right word? Or some kind of a way of finding expression for yourself in a way that you don't, isn't just imitating other people and that can happen in the movement as a whole you know so I think that Tree Ratman needs to be a creative movement I think he was very creative in how he set it up and I think we need to be creative we don't want to be constrained by saying no that's not you're not supposed to do it that way this is the way you're supposed to do it novelty needs to emerge and come into it but without it also how do you keep unity if you do that is everybody doing it in their own way do we all have our own special chants and pujas and meditations uh, or do we have some things that we can do together? So a very interesting balance there, isn't there, between keeping unity and being able to do things together, but yet really encouraging creativity. And one obvious area there is the arts. And, and his preferred art, from his own point of view, is poetry. And some of his poetry is pretty bad, in my opinion. But it's worth reading his poetry. It really gives you a different slant on him, actually, if you read his poetry. I mean, when I say bad, maybe it's a bit wrong, but it's, uh, it's derivative. Some, some of his poetry is derivative. It's some been of too, them really good. Some yes. very good poems, very moving poems. That's where you really yeah, see where his heart exactly. is. But sometimes I think he was a little bit too influenced by the, yeah. the genres that he was looking at. You know, he started off as a bit of a Victorian poet, and then he became a bit of a beat poet and was influenced <laughs> by the Liverpool poets. And the, anyway, if you Why can, do you think creativity is important than living Buddhism? Um, well, I think... That's a really good question. I think we will come back to it. But so I'll try and do it very, very briefly. But it seems to me that the whole Buddhist life is creating yourself. Mm. That's what you're actually doing, isn't it? You can't just go round in circles. Mm. You have to actually rise into the unknown. So how do you get into the unknown? In a way, you're making something new by going into the unknown. And in, so you are your greatest work of art, really. But that work of art, writing a poem or making a picture or you know, study, understanding nature deeply, all those sort of things can be a, a, a small creativity that leads to the great creativity of making yourself. You know, a Buddha is, a, is somebody who's created themselves in a way as fully as they possibly can. And it's interesting that Buddhism doesn't believe in a creator God. In a way, the creator is the individual in Buddhism, not an external force. You don't rely on that, you know. 
That's actually the question. It's a good one. Yeah. Yes, Tim. No. Question about uh, the name, because when uh, originally it was set up, it was Friends of the Western Buddhist Order. That's correct, yes. Um, and I always thought I was slightly curious. It sounds a bit like sort of Friends of the Victorian Armour Museum. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of slightly distant from the yes. actual subject. Why, why, firstly, why, why was, or do you know why that was originally the idea? Yeah, yes, and I then, think I do. And yes. then later on there was obviously this change of name to, to Tree Rattling. Yes. Why, why did it change? Well, the, in brief, uh, Sanger actually decided to set up an order, yeah, not a society. So it was a Buddhist order. So in English, he definitely wanted to call it the something Buddhist order. Yeah. Now, he felt he was actually breaking out something new. He wanted it not to be an Eastern form of Buddhism. So he decided to call it, to make that clear by calling it the Western Buddhist order. And so the order I was ordained into was, at that time, was actually known as the Western Buddhist order. And in a way, that was very self-explanatory. Now, a year before the order started, he wanted to start up an organisation that would support, a charitable organisation that would support the Western Buddhist order. And so he called that the Friends of the Western Buddhist order. And so this would be people who were not necessarily ordained and weren't even wanting to be ordained necessarily, but they wanted to support the work of the order. So that's why he called that charitable organisation the Friends of the Western Buddhist order. And he set it up in such a way in the end that it became many, many independent charities. So this was known as FWBO West London. And it was an independent charity, but it was a, that was supporting the work of the order in this particular area. Now, uh, uh, I didn't talk much about his work in India amongst the ex-untouchables. I didn't really say anything about it. But here's Dr. Ambedkar, who we had some celebration of earlier. Uh, one of the great Buddhists of the 20th century... Uh, Sangha actually knew him and very much supported his work in emancipating the untouchables by helping them to convert away from Hinduism into Buddhism. Uh, and of course, that, that work meant that Sangha actually had loads of contacts there. And so after, you know, probably the, mo- the biggest number of order members is in Europe, but the second biggest number is in India. And over the years, the Indians, more and more of them were really puzzled. Why am I joining a Western Buddhist order? It's ridiculous. I'm not Western. And so it actually had a different name in India, and people would get really confused about it, you know. And they were, they were sort of pushing this. And, and in fact, there's a lot of debate in the order. The order, to some extent, is anarchistic and run by a sort of a consensus process. So at first, there were loads of suggestions for how could we give it a different name that was well, that really represented the, you know, maybe we call it the World Buddhist Order or something like that, you know. And in the end, this name came up. Uh, Tree Ratna, the Three Jewels Buddhist Order. So that's the why it was changed to that. And rather than calling it, you could have said that the whole movement would be the friends of the Tree Ratna uh, Buddhist Order. But actually, they decided to say we'll have the Tree Ratna Buddhist Community for the uh, for the charitable organisations that help the order, and the Tree Ratna Buddhist Order as the order. Does that make some sort of sense? Yeah, just to add one thing on the problem, because Tree Ratna also makes sense because of the centrality of going for refuge. To go back to that, but that was yes. so central. Yes. And the three jewels is what you go to ref- for refuge to, and it's what's on the case. Yeah. So you know, so it goes right back to the founding principle. At one point, I think Sangaraj said you can change anything about how we do things in the order, except the centrality of going for refuge. So. Yeah, which is an interesting one, isn't it? You know, it's, he, he is he's, he's flexible. He's flexible, <laughs> and things have changed quite a lot. <laughs> Any other, oh, did, did you have something? Yeah, I just wanted uh, to ask, I know maybe it's not that important, but 
did he actually, did Sankarakshi actually get to meet Dalai Lama and was he actually influenced by him in any way? Yeah, he did, he did, he knew the Dalai Lama quite well uh, and had a number of meetings with, with him. But the, the Dalai Lama was in, um, uh, what's it, was it, was it Dharamsala. So the Dalai Lama was in Dharamsala and uh, Sankarakshi was over in Kalimpong. And so his, uh, and in fact, interestingly enough, this is getting a little bit technical, but the majority of his Tibetan teachers were from the Nyingma school. The Dalai Lama, as you probably know, is from the Gelug school. So he, if his Tibetan sort of affiliations were mainly with the Nyingma school, uh, where interestingly enough, uh, the Gelug school is a more monastic school. So the Dalai Lama is a monk, he's a celibate monk. Uh, but most of his teachers were married lamas, not all of them, but they were married lamas because the Nyingma school tends to have married lamas in it. And that was what he mainly learnt about. So I think it's fair to say that he's been friendly uh, with the Dalai Lama, the, the contacts they have had. I think the, um, the Dalai Lama came to visit him in Kalimpong one day. <laughs> That's yes, quite a lovely yes. story about Yeah, there are, there's a photograph of a them Western, together, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, celebration. That's right, yeah. So he was not, like, I mean, I'm directly influenced by him. Obviously he wasn't his teacher. Yeah, he wasn't one of his teachers, no. There's, uh, these... The, the, particularly the three in the top row, who are three very, very important, some of the, the three, probably the three most important Nyingma teachers of the 20th century, um, who were his teachers, uh, Dujem Rinpoche, Jem Rinpoche Rinpoche, and uh, Dilma Kensei Rinpoche. Um, yeah. Any other thoughts? What, what, was the, what would you say, you may think you've answered this, but what was the most important thing, that you, or most helpful thing that you learned from Sangraj? I think, you know, to give a really honest answer, I have to really think about that carefully because I've learnt so much. Um, I mean, I think you'd have to look in the different areas. And, and what I value most is the fact that I was able to live in the same community as him for five years and to actually see somebody really practising Buddhism and gradually get the sense of this is what it's like for somebody to be really practising, really working on himself, uh, watching him meditate, watching him be mindful, watching him respond to others with kindness, watching him deal with his own demons and his own problems and all that kind of thing, I found really helpful. Not that I was doing the same thing, but it's more it's not that I wanted to follow his example in the sense of copying him, but I could see that is how you, if you like, go for refuge, I suppose. So definitely that's one thing. But then the other thing that I got from him, uh, which is more of a, an esoteric thing, is the ordination itself. And you know, I, you know, I was out on a three-month retreat. Uh, in uh, Tuscany, uh, in a remote place, in this old crumbling monastery, and you know, after I'd been there for about two months, you know, there it was, you know, and we were all meditating, doing metta bhavna together, and then I had to sort of leave and follow this little winding avenue of little tiny candles, go up the stairs, down the corridor, to a little room at the end, one of the old monks' cells, and then it was like a you know this magical experience which I suppose you could call initiation in a way. Not that anything really esoteric happened. I could be happy to describe exactly what happened, but it's as if what did happen is not really describable, I suppose. Um, so there is a sense in which he introduced me to something in the ordination ceremony, I suppose. And when I performed an ordination, because I'm uh, a preceptor just for one person, and when I performed an ordination, in a way I wanted to do, to, to carry on that, that sort of transmission, I suppose, as best I could. For the person I ordained. Yes. You said he was uh, no longer the head of the order. 
No, there's a there's a collective head. So the uh, so the I mentioned that he appointed people to confer ordinations. So now the preceptors, specifically the, what are known as the public preceptors, are the head of the order. That's that's right, isn't it? That's so so it's a it's a collective. It's a group. I don't know if that's sensible or not. Because I know, funny enough, you know, one, he is slightly critical of the Buddha because the Buddha refused to name a successor, and and. Sangrachta felt that some of the problems in the beginnings of Buddhism, where it split up a lot, was possibly because the Buddha refused to name a successor and told everybody, look, the Dharma is your teacher, that's what you've got to follow. Uh, but having said that, maybe he, maybe later he realised the Buddha was right and he didn't name a successor, at least he's really still alive, but you know, he hasn't named a successor, he's passed it on to a group of people rather than an individual person. But also, yes, the interesting thing is they're kind of the head of the order in that they're conferring ordinations, but they don't, they're not sort of hierarchically the head of the order deciding everything because every centre still operates in a self organising way. So that's how. So nobody nobody tells us what to teach here or anything like (laughs) that. In a good way. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Thank you. Um, We've just got time maybe for one more if someone's got a. Question. I'll show you. I don't know if it's a useful question. I was just really surprised to hear you say you weren't religious. So yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got yeah. that. So how would you describe it? Yeah, no, when I, I uh, there was a time when I was the chair of the Cambridge Buddhist Centre, and somebody s- said, "Oh yeah, you're just like a vicar, aren't you?" And I really hated that. <laughs> I don't want to be like a vicar. <laughs> My mum used to send me to Sunday school every Sunday. No, no, no. <laughs> so it's probably just my sort of prejudice that says that, you know. Is it not surprising he's not enlightened? I'm sorry, Stefan, the question. But uh, is he, yeah. I mean, he's still maybe got a bit of time, or is he still out on a goal, or because he's referred to yeah. thought being unenlightened? Well, that's another, and that's another whole other very interesting area in a way, isn't it? You know, how how do you get enlightened? Is he still making spiritual progress? You know, it's a bit different. He's, I, I'm really impressed by him as a spiritual being. You know, as I say, that mind that can very consistent mind was a very consistent kindness. I've never seen from anybody else that degree of consistency, including other you know high up Buddhist teachers that I've met. Um, so he's very, he's pretty impressive, uh, but I'm you know he himself says that he still has faults and flaws and so on, and I'm, I'm sure that's true, you know, and, uh, you know, to some extent, it's going to be much more difficult, it's going to be easier to see what his blind spots and problems were after he's died. You have this sort of, um, you have this sort of inhibition, in a way, almost at seeing it, while somebody you have a lot of respect for is still alive. Uh, but I think after he's died, probably we'll be able to see, well, very good in this respect, not so good in this respect, and all that kind of thing. Now, of course, he's very naughty. He ought to have gained enlightenment by now. I think, you know, I think he said a letter of complaint. You know, there you, you started at 16. More than 70, that should be enough time to gain enlightenment. It's absolutely disgraceful. Has he definitely not, as you said? Do, I thought people didn't say it. No, they don't say that kind of thing. No, and in fact, you know, one person once asked him, and he said, well, if I said I was enlightened, would that be helpful, you know, or would you believe me? You know, if I said I wasn't enlightened, would that help you? You know, what's the point of saying? So in a way, he has reached a stage where you refuse to say, I'm perfectly happy to say I'm not enlightened because I'm quite sure I'm not. <laughs> 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 um, but he, he sort of deflects that kind of a question. But, you know, but I mean, 
Yeah, who knows? Who knows? But I mean, I don't really know what enlightenment is. I know, you know, if the, the, the records we have of the Buddha and of some of those other great enlightened teachers are of people who are even more amazing than Sangharakshita. So there's a chance in his next life he's going to have to get even more amazing. Than <laughs> <then>. <laughs> he thought one of his teachers was enlightened, didn't he? Dada Rinpoche. He, he was quite convinced of it. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly met people who he's been absolutely blown away by. Okay, so we're going to leave it there. Next week, Akasha Devi will look at going for refuge, which I hope you will find interesting. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 